Welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Uh, this week, my guest is Mike Eckel. He is a senior correspondent at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, based in Prague. And I brought him on because he's done a lot of reporting about a figure who's all over the news cycle this week, Konstantin Kalimnik. He was named in the latest suite of Biden administration sanctions against Russia, sanctioned himself yet again for his interference in the 2020 election. But what was pretty remarkable, or at least newsworthy, given the government's description of him, was what he got up to in the 2016 election. So they named Kalimnik as a Russian intelligence operative or agent. The nomenclature varies depending on which government agency you consult. But somebody who was passing sensitive polling information from the Trump 2016 campaign back to Moscow and to the Russian intelligence services in particular. Now, this was something that had been widely assumed based on the reading of Kalimnik's role in the Mueller report, but never actually certified by the U.S. government. Mike, it's great to have you on the show. I know you've done extensive reporting on Mr. Kalimnik. Let me start by asking you just generally, I mean, who is this guy and where has he been and why has he been so mobbed up with American political consultants over the past few decades that he's now implicated in not one, but two election interference schemes? Well, Michael, it's Kalimnik's a really, really fascinating character. And, you know, he's been on the scene since the mid 90s, just not on the big radar screen that 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 everyone now is paying attention to. You know, he he worked for uh, the International Republican Institute uh, for many years, beginning in the 1990s. And the IRI is for people who don't know, is a American funded like democracy promotion organization. It is uh, it used to be quite active in the former Soviet Union with offices all over the place, helping to build political parties and advise political consultants and uh, doing all sorts of, you know, the, the sort of in the trenches work to build a, a de democratic political system. And it was there that Kalimnik worked. He had been working for at least a decade to the mid 19, mid 2000s, when the time frame isn't entirely clear that he began moonlighting for Paul Manafort. And Paul Manafort has a very long and storied political history. And I'm sure many of your listeners know a lot of it already. But, uh, you know, Manafort, among other things, I think he ran Bob Dole's um, election campaign in 1996, presidential campaign, and had a very influential political consulting operation called Davis Manafort and had a various iterations. But Anyways, in the mid-2000s, Manafort brought Kalimnik on to moonlight as Kalimnik was working for the IRI in Moscow. And ultimately, Kalimnik got fired from the IRI. And he began to work more closely with, with Manafort on various projects, including projects in Ukraine. And, and we can talk, I guess, more about that in a bit. But you know, and Kalimnik's Kostya is how people know him uh, informally. Uh, Kostya's background training was with a, a very prestigious institute for foreign languages in Moscow that had ties to the Russian intelligence and defense establishment. He is fluent in English, certainly. I'm not sure how many languages he's known to speak fluently. I think he's Swedish, obviously Russian, and English. He was he was teaching Swedish at the military university, if I'm not mistaken. Is that what it was? Okay. His English is flawless. 
you know, that pedigree um, is one of the things or foundations that people look at when when coming to the conclusion or building the, the theory that he's been an intelligence asset to the Russian intelligence services for his entire professional career. Okay, so fast forward, Ukraine. Manafort is in Ukraine. He was brought on board by a couple of the Ukrainians' wealthiest oligarchs, Renata Khmetov, among others, to help rejuvenate the political career of Viktor Yanukovych, who had lost the 2004 Ukrainian presidential election to Viktor Yushchenko. Yanukovych in the late 2000s was kind of washed up and, and Manafort was brought on to the case to, as a political technologist, as the Russians say, you know, as a political consultant to, to rejuvenate uh, Yanukovych's career. And he did just that. He helped propel Yanukovych to election in 2010 as Ukraine's president. And what was really fascinating, I covered Manafort's trial in Alexandria Federal Court um, a, a few years back. And if you recall, Manafort was put on trial for a bank fraud, tax evasion, and uh, a couple similar related questions. And there was all sorts of really in the weeds documentation and correspondence that was entered into the record by prosecutors where they talked about the work that Manafort did for Yanukovych and the Yanukovych party, a party of regions. And it was really interesting to see, you know, how, what Manafort was trying to do with polling, with television ads, with focus groups, I mean, he really brought like American style political campaign building to Ukraine uh, and was wildly successful. I mean, uh, he and in doing so, Manafort made, you know, a shit ton of money. I mean, sorry, uh, a lot of money. That's OK. We're, we're, we're a, a, an R-rated show, so you can get away with it. OK, fair enough. Um, but so here's the thing, then. I mean, if you go back and look at some of the press coverage of Kalimnik, Certainly beginning in 2017, when, you know, the, the Trump-Russia allegations really start to dominate the American news cycle. There are a lot of people who are going around. One guy in particular, uh, Phil Griffin, who I believe is the political consultant, also mobbed up with Manafort, but the guy who brought Kalimnik into IRI, who told the Washington Post at one point, yeah, we all knew this guy was GRU. We all knew he was a military intelligence officer. He was very open about it. He used to brag about it. So this is going back to the 90s at a point where... Okay, the Soviet Union is no more. To have somebody who was from the services milling around Washington and even perhaps going to work for, in this case, a Cold War era democracy or Cold War, I suppose, inspired democracy promotional vehicle aligned with the Republican Party, the party most interested and most, I I suppose, uh, assiduous in trying to bring down the Soviet Union was not seen as such a big deal, right? Yeah. It's only until recently that such a pedigree or portfolio is likely to raise eyebrows. And so I I guess the real question, you know, as far as you can answer it is, how did Kalimnik get away with this for so long? I mean, you're right. Manafort worked Bob Dole's campaign. I think he also had a role in John McCain's 2008 campaign for president, albeit very briefly because Manafort by then was sort of in ill odor, even among mainstream GOP circles. But how, how does a guy you know, this kind of very notorious American political consultant end up doing business for so long with a Russian intelligence officer and especially dealing in former Soviet Union countries such as Ukraine. So two things I think it's worth highlighting, you know, Phil Griffin's comments about Kalinic are, are, I don't know what to make of that because, 
you know, I've talked to people who have intersected with him in the past through IRI mainly, at least three different people who intersected with him over the past. And, and they all said, we had no idea he was an intelligence agent. Again, we're going back into the 2000s here. Yeah. So, you know, if this was an open secret, I mean, that is kind of a scandalous in its own way Yeah, uh, that, you know, em- emissaries of the Republican Party were openly willing to, to go into bi- to business with this guy. So I'm not sure what to make of, of Griffin's comments in this regard. You know, I, again, Manafort was definitely, you know, he was a gold-plated consultant for the Republicans. Again, Bob Dole, John McC- Kane, his political consultant company was was renowned for its Republican connections. Another aspect of Manafort's background is the fact that his connections to a Russian oligarch by the name of Oleg Deripaska, who and Manafort at one point was helping to try and figure out Deripaska is uh, he made his mint in the in the in Russia in the metals industry. Aluminum, I think, among other things. Yeah. And for many years had been on uh, the radar screen for U.S. law enforcement and U.S. intelligence as being basically a mobster uh, in deep with one or more various Russian organized crime groups. In the 2000s, Deripaska couldn't get into the United States. He couldn't get a visa to get into the United States. Right. And he enlisted some of the the best and brightest of, of Washington's K Street lobbying outfits to help figure out a way to get him a visa so he could get into the country, to get into the United States. And so Manafort was doing work for Deripaska. Deripaska was well-connected with Akhmetov and the Russian oligarchs, yada, yada, yada. But so the point was, you know, Manafort was, he was a gold-plated, he had sterling credentials in the Republican Party. So the fact that he was able to work so long and hard and closely with Kalimnik over the years, I mean, it's wholly plausible that that was just, you know, the veneer of, he gave Kalimnik the veneer of respectability and that made people who thought he was GRU to look the other way. You know, I don't know. It's a, it's a hard question for me to get my head around. And so the, the other question that's now been raised in the last 24 hours is, okay, if Kalimnik was feeding sensitive polling data from inside the Trump campaign back to Moscow, presumably back to either the GRU or you know, maybe even the SVR directly to the presidential administration. We don't know. Why was Manafort feeding him that information to begin with, right? And you mentioned Deripaska. Right. And in the Mueller report, you know, it's widely known and, and asserted that Manafort owed millions of dollars to Deripaska. And, and I, I believe the phrase he at one point used with Gates is, how do we get whole, right? So yeah. how do we we get this alleged Russian mobster off our back. And that would it would stand to reason then if giving stuff to Kalimnik were to benefit not just Deripaska, but the Russian authorities, um, that this would be a way for, for Manafort to have a kind of target removed from his back as an individual, right? Right. I mean, and here's where we get into kind of the, the murkiness of, I, I just absolutely loathe this word, especially in 2021, but, you know, collusion between members of the Trump campaign and the Russian government, right? Was, was Paul Manafort just a corrupt and shady businessman in bed with a Russian intelligence asset and using any means at his disposal, however backward or dirty or sinister, to alleviate the the debt that he had incurred with some really nasty comers? Or was this something that was perhaps a little more conspiratorial? In other words, 
the Russians saw Manafort as a useful vehicle into, you know, the heart of a major presidential campaign, one that by what, July, June, July 2017 was, you know, the, the heir apparent or the nominee for the Republican Party. 2016, yes. 2016, sorry. And yeah, I mean, absolutely, they're going to use that to their advantage to exfiltrate as much intelligence and data as they can. And then added to that, what would they have done with such polling data? I mean, use it to target certain constituencies in America, swing states with various tropes of disinformation and propaganda hoping to at least turn the, the voting trends against Hillary Clinton, if not overtly for Donald Trump. I mean, talk us through what you make of these disclosures, because you've been covering this for a long time. So what you were saying at the outset about, you know, Manafort being uh, having debts to Deripaska and possibly others, and that's that's a matter of record. Yeah. And, you know, the backstory to that is, going to the Maidan revolution in Ukraine in 2014. Again, Yanukovych was elected in 2010. Manafort was riding high. He was raking in all these millions of dollars from his consultant work. 2014, Yanukovych is, is ousted by the, by the month of demonstration in Kiev, and he flees to Russia. And Manafort is all of a sudden, his income, his revenue have all dried up. You know, by that time, he was had a fairly, say, opulent lifestyle. And this is not just a matter of speculation. I mean, the prosecutors that put him on trial in in Alexandria and Virginia were very meticulous, painting a picture of of the lifestyle that he lived. And he needed money to keep that lifestyle up. And he had major debts to Deripaska. He was dealing in a couple of transactions going back. Uh, eight or 10 years, one involving Hotel New York, another one involving a telecommunications deal. And again, Deripaska has a reputation in Russia as being a fairly, you know, shady character. He's, he doesn't let debts go unrepaid, in other words. Yeah, you know, I mean... He's not going to take it to collections court over millions of dollars. He, he handles things a little bit differently, yeah? I don't want to say Tony Soprano, but I, I do want to say, you know, he's a guy you don't want to, you want to stay on the right side of as much as you can, no matter where you are in the world. So here we are, 2000 and let's say 2014, Yanukovych is in, is in Russia, Ukraine is convulsed, gets a new president in place who is not in bed with all these oligarchs to the same degree. And all of a sudden, Manafort has debts to pay. 2015, all of a sudden, Donald Trump is, you know, beginning to to rise in the uh, in the public awareness about about running for president. Yeah. And Manafort joins the campaign finally in, uh, I guess it was the spring of 2016. I think so. Yeah, is that when he joined the campaign and became the campaign manager? Right, and he worked for free. He didn't take any money from the Trump campaign, um, which is unusual. But this unusual, but again, it, it brings us back to the question. His compensation was information and power, clout, right? It seems that way for sure. And that leads us to then ask, well, what was he doing and, and who was he giving that information to? And we now have an answer. I mean, some of this stuff was winding back in, in Moscow. And I find it hard to believe, and maybe you disagree with me, that Manafort, in passing this stuff to Kalimnik, didn't quite know who his business partner Kostya was for all these years. I mean, 
would they really have had that kind of relationship where Kostya was, just, oh, I was just a, you know, I taught Swedish at a defense ministry aligned academy that happens to be a feeder for the GRU. And, but there's no, right. nothing to see here. I'm just a businessman like you, Paul. It just seems a bit, right. you know, we begin to, to, to creep into more of a conspiracy than I think we were aware of or that we could plausibly allege even a few years ago, right? I mean, and this is the thing, Mueller was not really the final word on what transpired in this country a half decade ago, right? We're still learning things. I mean, US intelligence does not allege in a sanctions packet something that it cannot adequately stand up. I mean, point counterpoint to all of this, the, the uh, you know so-called GRU Taliban bounty story, which there are no sanctions for because the intelligence, frankly, isn't yeah. all that adequate. It's low to moderate, right? So- I'm wondering how they know the information was passed from Kalimnik back to the Russian services, for one thing, and then also what they would interpret as, you know, the service's response to that information. And when? Yeah, and when? When did they know this? Yeah. Because I think that's a crucial aspect that I've seen teased at in, in, in a couple of different places. You know, when the news of the sanctions broke yesterday and people discovered the aspect of Kalimnik uh, the mention of Kalimnik, um, there was some discussion of, okay, didn't we know all this already? Wasn't this already well known? And so then, you know, we're, we're going back to the Senate Select Intelligence Committee report, all 966 pages, and everyone's doing keyword searches. And, you know, there's still some ambiguity uh, on what Kalimnik did with the information that he received from Manafort. And then we go back to the Mueller report, 448 pages, and you know, the Mueller report is even more ambiguous. The office yeah. could not assess what Kalimnik or others he may have given it to did with the polling data. Right. So th- this is sort of tangential to what you're asking, but how is it that, you know, here we are in, in April 2021, we get this really kind of unambiguous statement polling data was given to a Russian intelligence agent in 2016. Uh, but we didn't know that. The Mueller didn't know that. The, the Senate investigators didn't know this, uh, you know, three, four years ago. Uh, that's really, really begs the question. So, I mean, you know, when it comes to American counterintelligence, we're, we're looking at patchworks, right? We have Mueller, we have the, the Senate Subcommittee on Intelligence Report, five volumes of it, in fact. Yeah. We also have the ODNI, which came out a couple of weeks ago, right? The Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which alleged, and this was the kind of prelude to this Kalimnik sanctions package, that not only was Kostya interfering in the 2016 election, but he also interfered in the 2020 election. Specifically, he is named as a Russian intelligence asset, along with Andrei Derkach, a Ukrainian MP, and they go into specifics. These two were orchestrating a a propaganda campaign against the Biden family, right? Touching upon Hunter Biden's involvement in Burisma, Ukrainian energy company, and and all the rest of it. But they had managed to get a documentary made, which is very clearly the One America News Network documentary on the Biden's entanglements in Ukraine. And so put yourself in the position of somebody like Konstantin Kalimnik. You're all over the U.S. investigation into what happened in 2016. But as of like 2019, you're also skulking around trying to get the incumbent reelected by attacking his rival, right? Perhaps, and again, this I'm speculating, this is just the theory, perhaps the Russian services told Kalimnik, look, you know, this is what we, we assess the Americans know about what you did the last time around. 
it's in your own interest as an individual, you know, who presumably wants to travel the world still to help keep Biden out of office because, you know, God knows what they're going to do the minute a new administration comes in right. and really yeah. starts going after Russian skullduggery. I kind of see this all on a continuum now. If I were a GRU officer and I got caught with my hand in the cookie jar in 2016, I'd probably keep a lower profile in 2020 unless I had a vested personal interest in making sure that nothing more about what I did right. in the prior election came to light. Do you know what I mean? Again, this is sort of, we get into this sort of John Le Carré wheels within wheels aspect of trying to figure out what's going on. But it sort of boggles the mind really that, that the same Russian intelligence asset crops up within the space of what, eight years in two different massive US elections, highly contentious and using similar, but also different means at his disposal. And wasn't on the radar screen. (laughs) Just to finish your thought. I I agree. You you, You put all this up on the bulletin board and you, and you take off, you know, the implausible, the impossible, and you, you narrow it down and it, you know, it begs some really hard questions. Uh, yeah. You know, how much, <laughs> who knew what and when, uh, in not only in the Republican establishment, in the U.S. intelligence community. Right. And why this stuff didn't come out sooner. Where, where is Kalimnik now? Is there any kind of beat on, on his whereabouts? He's, he's obviously not in Ukraine, because I think the Ukrainians would have arrested him by now. Yeah, no, he's believed to be. Is he in Russia? Yeah, he's in Russia. Yeah. I've seen reports that he's outside of Moscow and just, you know, laying low, obviously, and and, and not talking to people in any way, shape or form. He does occasionally answer to WhatsApp messages and and similar things. My colleague, Chris Miller, uh, who's one of the people who's also done some stellar work on, on Kalimnik and has had one of the only extensive face-to-face report uh, interviews with him, um, has pinged back and forth with him, though nothing of, of real uh, serious substance. So, you know, the, if the, the commensal wisdom is correct in that he is and has been an intelligence agent for years, if not decades, then obviously his superiors are telling him to sit down and, you know, shut the fuck up and, and do only what we tell you to do. You know, uh, it's reasonable to conclude that, you know, when 2019 rolled around, and um, the election cycle began to clarify and we knew Biden was going to, to be in the race that the Russians decided to, to figure out, OK, who can we whose strings can we pull in Ukraine? Yeah. By that time, the Biden story was kind of already percolating. As we know, there were Ukrainian uh, MPs already beginning to sort of throw spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. Yeah. You know, the whole backstory of uh, Lutsenko, the Ukrainian prosecutor general, and him getting sacked, that was all kind of already floating out there. So it was just a matter of, you know, finding someone like Kalimnik who was capable. And again, I'm speculating. I don't know this for a fact, but it would be finding someone like Kalimnik who then could figure out who to work with in Ukraine, who to start giving this information to so that it would then ultimately uh, make its way back into the American political ecosystem. And this is where, of course, Rudy Giuliani comes in, but we can talk about Rudy Giuliani at another time, a whole separate podcast episode. Yeah. So, Mike, what else did you take away from the, the major sanctions drop yesterday? I mean, there, there was so much in there to digest from the Solar Winds hack, which now the U.S. government certifies was conducted by the SVR. 
in conjunction with a bunch of, it seems like freelance criminal operatives, like Pakistani nationals are mentioned in this thing, right? Right. Uh, that was interesting. They've name checked three different English language disinformation portals, each one run by a different Russian service, FSB, SVR, GRU. They all got their, got their licks in, I suppose, in terms of pushing uh, conspiracy theories about COVID and Ukraine and so on and so forth. Right. And then also, I want to ask you how you see the current Washington-Moscow dynamic affecting Russia's calculations with respect to Ukraine right now. As you know, yeah. major military buildup at the border in Donbass for the last seven years, in fact, even though this doesn't get much attention in the press, there's been an even bigger buildup steadily over time in Crimea, both in terms of Russian military personnel caliber cruise missiles. The Black Sea Fleet is all over the region now in a way that they even weren't before. What do you anticipate is going to happen? Do you think that this is some intimidation exercise or do you think that this the Russians could actually reinvade? So before I answer that, I want to, if you, I want to tie off one loose end with the Manafort question. Sure. And this gets to the issue about the polling data that you uh, that we talked about, uh, we touched on briefly. Allegedly, Manafort was giving Kalimnik internal campaign data, polling data about specific districts or places in in the 2016 U.S. election campaign that were, I don't know, battlegrounds or, or I don't know exactly what the data was. But you ask what could happen with that data if it were to end up in the hands of a sophisticated analytical operation run by either the FSB or the GRU in Moscow. And the answer to that question comes from the discussion or leads to the discussion of the infamous Russian troll factory. Yeah. The Internet Research Agency, which, uh, as your listeners know, was established by this Gentleman Yevgeny Prigozhin, St. Petersburg businessman, runs catering operations for the Kremlin, has the moniker Putin chef, and was funding this notorious, sophisticated internet operation that was, you know, creating Facebook pages and personas, sending out targeted ads that were, if not denigrating Hillary Clinton, were certainly, you know, just stirring the shit pot to rile Americans up. Theoretically, sophisticated, detailed uh, polling data and certain precincts in the battleground states in 2016, that information could be used by a sophisticated internet operation in Moscow to target certain disinformation uh, efforts. Right. We don't know that was the case. There's sure uh, as a hell of a lot of puzzle pieces that kind of point to that being the case. We know a lot about Prigozhin's operations. We know a lot about how Facebook kind of looked the other way in terms of having foreigners set up uh, straw man accounts. I think we'll, we'll learn more about that as time goes on. And, and the last qu- point on, on, on this question, I think, is interesting, comes from Manafort's uh, former partner, Rick Gates. Rick Gates worked with Manafort in, as a political consultant for many years, including in Ukraine. Gates turned on Manafort and testified against him in the trial in Alexandria, Virginia. And, you know, Manafort, he's a traitor as far as Manafort is concerned. And Gates has played down the significance of the data that was uh, relayed by Manafort to Kilimnik. He Gates has said in this in a public statement actually that the data was 
you know, really simplistic and outdated and it wasn't that useful. So take that, be that what it, what it is, you know, that's, that's Gates who's, who's, who's testified for the U S government against Manafort kind of plea deal, but he's saying it wasn't that significant. So, you know, so there's that, um, to your last question. Yeah. Sanctions, Biden, um, what does this mean for the Russian dynamic? You know, it's been it's been funny to read the analysis of the sanctions that came out and then people saying, no, this is totally pansy, weak ass nonsense. And the Russians are just laughing their way to the bank about how these sanctions were targeted, you know, particularly like the sovereign debt issue. But then there is a, uh, a sizable group of com- commentariat saying, actually, these are more substantial than you might might suspect, mainly because of, of, of the foreshadowing, the, the signaling about what comes next and what could be coming down the pike. You know, people have been really critical of how the U.S. has wielded sanctions over 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 not just with Russia, but with other countries that we just sort of use it all the time willy nilly. And it's, it's our go-to foreign policy tool these days. And it doesn't really have any, it's losing its, its bite, its, its significance, its weight. It doesn't have any point anymore. And, and countries like Russia can sort of shrug it off. There's an argument that the, what the benefit in these sanctions yesterday are that, yeah, while they aren't you know, super duper killer uh, nuclear, thermonuclear sanctions, they do point to, they basically say, okay, Kremlin, if you don't change your behavior, this is what's coming down the pike. So, you know, the signaling aspect. In other words, like major sectoral sanctions that would cripple the Russian economy? Uh, well, it's sectoral sanctions, you know, where the debt issue is concerned, going after not only the primary markets for, for debt issuance, which is what these uh, sanctions in the previous rounds in 2018 went after, but the secondary market sectoral sanctions, more personalized sanctions, you know, there weren't a whole lot of individuals that were, were, were called out in these sanctions yesterday. In the past, uh, specific people have been uh, dinged by Treasury and state. Uh, that didn't really happen in, in the sanctions yesterday. And by people, I mean, you know, some of the most powerful and wealthiest businessmen in Russia, who, if not are, are, are Putin's close friends, then they're certainly within the first or second inner circles of Kremlin policymaking. So, yeah, sectoral sanctions, more individual, individual sanctions, um, expanded debt, sovereign debt. The SWIFT issue has been talked about for, for a long time, for many years. Uh, I think going back to Crimea, yeah. in fact, 2014, SWIFT is, of course, the interbanking communication network for lack of a better description. And it's sort of the, the, the system that makes international banking work. If you cut Russia out of that system, that would be, I mean, it would be huge for the Russian financial sector and it would have serious ramifications for the entire economy. Yeah. Uh, the last, last note on this, in this question is, is something that everyone should keep in mind. The Russians have been really smart about their finances for the past five to seven years. They have huge reserves saved up. The National Wealth Fund, these sovereign wealth funds, they have, uh, the, the way they budgeted for oil prices, their finances are so rock solid 
that at least in the short term, they can ride out this type of thing. It's not going to really, you know, cripple the economy in any way, shape or form. Mm. So, you know, the Biden people are smart. They know this. People in the Treasury know this. If they're going to go thermonuclear with the sanctions, it's going to take, you know, serious thermonuclear, I guess. But pointing pointing to that option as as being, you know, in the short term rather than the long term might also be a way of deterring Russian actions with respect to Ukraine, right? Yeah, that's what I mean, is the signaling aspect to it. Don't even think about it. Yeah. And right. so to your question about Ukraine, of course, are the Russians are about to invade or are they just sort of showing off? Is this chest thumping or is this a real invasion? That's been a discussion going on that that, that you've seen for, for several weeks now since since the convoys of train cars were pulling up to Voronezh and Rostov and and airborne brigades were being relocated to Crimea. And, yeah. you know, my my read is I'm inclined to agree that this is more for show, more than actual invasion. And the biggest argument to that effect is, you know, if you're going to invade another country, you're not going to do it in full scale, you know, for all the world to see. I mean, everyone was watching these train cars. Everyone was watching these troop movements and these these tanks and these missile launchers being schlepped across the country in post in Baronish, you'd want to be a little more secretive about it if you actually, in fact, are going to invade. You know, there are a couple of people in D.C. Michael Kaufman is the biggest proponent of this, and he's a real smart watcher of these matters. He's subscribed to the notion that this is just this is an intimidation factor, basically to say to the Zelensky administration, the Ukrainian president, hey, you know what we can do. Don't make us do it. And it's a signal to the Biden administration, like an early challenge to the Biden administration to say, you know, we're we're not going to just sit back while you start sanctioning us right and left. We have the Trump card, which is if things really go to shit, the Russians will invade. Yes. And the Americans are not going to put troops on the ground. The NATO is not going to put troops on the ground. But what in your in your view, what would Zelensky have to do that would provoke Russia into invading? Well, it would be so two things. One would be like an outright military campaign. If Zelensky sought to, to change the battlefield, the line of contact along the in the Donbass, along Donetsk and Luhansk, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. Right. Zelensky's not that dumb. Recall Zelensky was also elected on a campaign of one of his campaign promises was to try and bring peace to the to the Donbass situation. So he gave an interview to Simon Schuster of Time in which he seemed to be pretty adept at reading the Russian maneuvering as an attempt to try and provoke him into doing something untoward or aggressive, which could then be furnished the pretext yeah. for the Russian invasion. So he, he seems to be on to this plan. Uh, at least that's what he's signaling to international media. So I, I think I agree that he's not an idiot who's going to fall so easily into this trap. No, no, no. Like what happened in 2008 in Georgia, perhaps. Georgia, right. There was just the pretext was, you know, of course, what went on in South Sessia and then boom, the Russians went in and that was that. And Sakafili was was kind of screwed. The Russians would like nothing better than to have a pretext to go in. And, and I'm sure they would take it uh, in a minute if it arose. So I, I think I agree with you. I think Zelensky is much more sophisticated and a better read of, of what the Russians want. You know, the other battlefield question in all this is, is, is Crimea, of course, and Crimea's water. Crimea is a, is a dry, arid peninsula. Yeah. 
does not have a copious uh, indigenous water source. Water is is uh, used to be anyways um, can, uh, brought in from a canal from the Dnieper River. The Ukrainians cut that off not long after the Russians seized Crimea. Crimea is drying up. They they can't drill wells. They can't build pipelines yeah. from uh, Krasnodar. So the thinking was, you know, maybe the Russians would be bold enough to go after the Dnieper Canal and basically seize that to, to ensure a water supply to Crimea. But, you know, the amount of bloodshed that would entail, the amount of Russians that would lose their lives. I mean, the Ukrainians are a better military than they were in 2015. The the opprobrium that would, that would uh, provoke from the Western world and the cost that would involve, I just don't see that happening. It's just not worth it for Putin at this stage in the game. And it seems to me that the bloom has gone off the rose, as it were, for his popularity for Putin, yeah. following the annexation of Crimea. The polling doesn't suggest that, you know, the Russian populace is very keen to have a full scale no. European <laughs> yeah. war, one that they couldn't deny. Yeah, either, yeah. I mean, unlike the dirty war in Donbass, right? It would be a lot harder to deny body counts and hide the bodies in, in, yeah. in cemeteries in, in Piskov or uh, Rostov if you had train cars full of, of dead Russian soldiers coming coming back from, from that area. Yeah, the other, uh, you asked what else might, you know, Zelensky do to provoke the Russians. Zelensky in February or January it was, he, he cracked down hard on uh, one particular gentleman named Viktor Medvedchuk, who is um, alleged to be the godfather, I think, for one of Putin's daughters, or maybe the other way around. Putin is the godfather for one of Medvedchuk's kids. I can't remember exactly. But that's right. Yeah. Th- th- there's a very close relationship between Medvedchuk and Putin, and Medvedchuk has been seen, and his pot- Medvedchuk's political party is basically seen as a Russian, the Russian party in the Ukrainian parliament. Zelensky dropped the hammer on, on Medvedchuk and his media operation, and that deprived, effectively deprived the Russians of a strong, you know, conduit for Russian-centric information or disinformation um, in Ukraine. Yeah. You know, so is Zelensky going to continue that and go after other oligarchs with close ties to Russia? Uh, who knows? I mean, Kolomoisky, uh, he doesn't have super ties to Russia. Firtash, Dmitry Firtash, there's another gentleman that we're talking about. Well, he's also still facing uh, extradition to the United States, right? Yes, of course, he has excellent lawyers in the United States who are working on that, who are connected with the Trump campaign and Rudy Giuliani. Oh, Rudy Giuliani pops up again. About that. He's coming back, doesn't he? He keeps coming back. So, um, Well, Mike, we uh, not to make too hand-handed a segue there, but we should have you back on to uh, discuss all these things uh, as they develop. It's been great. And you can find Mike Eccles' work at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and on Twitter. Uh, what's your Twitter handle again, Mike? It's at Mike underscore Eccle. Okay, easy enough. Great. Well, you've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, and we'll see you next week. Thanks very much.